Today's a good day because we get to kick things off talking about our good friends over at Lumi Labs. You know them. They are the kings of microdosing, which is when you take a little bit of THC throughout the day to maintain kind of a, a level of relaxation without getting totally blitzed out of your mind. We are both fans of uh, marijuana and marijuana derivatives. Uh, yes. The KingCast. Um, uh, we tend to use these products in particular uh, a tad differently, I think Scott, you you much prefer the buzzy sensation you get when you when you take a few of them. Uh, I I tend to take them as a sleep aid. Yes, um, as I've said multiple times, and I will <laughs> remind our our listeners uh, over and over again. My sleep schedule is all kinds of screwed up, and my circadian rhythm gets knocked out of whack at the I don't know a slight change of temperature. It feels like, and so these gummies uh, are a godsend for me because I use them. Uh, a bit as a sleep aid. They mm-hmm. they conk me right out. They relax me. I drift off into a nice, peaceful sleep. So you can use them uh, for whichever version of the effect that you want. But the great thing about our friends at Lumi Labs is that since they use a synthetic strain of THC, you can get them delivered to your front door, no matter where you live, no matter what your state's marijuana laws are. And if you want to learn more about microdosing or more about their products, you can go to microdose.com. If you like what you see, you can use the code KINGCAST to save 30% off of your first order. Again, that's microdose.com, code KINGCAST. Very well done, Eric. And I'm here to tell you about uh, our corporate overlords at Fangoria. In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years, and they are better than ever, with each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page, head on over to Fangoria.com to learn more, to subscribe, and while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code KINGCAST to save 25% off your yearly subscription. Now on with the show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. The ice! He's gonna break! Well, sometimes that is better. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. Our guest today is a platinum-certified artist, singer, and songwriter best known as being half of the dynamic duo known as The Living Tombstone, which NME dubbed the Internet's biggest gaming band. Besides the 40 billion global streams the band has racked up over the years, he's also an accomplished voiceover artist who you've heard across various cartoons and iconic anime properties, as well as a writer-director whose shorts have been featured on Birth Movies Death, the AV Club, and many other websites. He's here today to promote his work on Prime Video's recently launched Has Been Hotel and to present us uh, an original composition he's written uh, about Stephen King's Cujo. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Sam Half to the King Cast stage. How are you doing, Sam? Hello, hello. Uh, I am doing pretty, pretty great. It's uh, the the response to the dropping of has been today. I mean, I don't know what day this comes out, but we're recording on the nineteenth. Uh, yes, and it's been uh, it's been pretty overwhelming. I don't think uh, I was mentally built to take in that much feedback at a time, and uh, I think, <laughs> I think it's causing active psychic damage. I see a lot of has been hotel stuff in my feed. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know how much of you that is you retweeting and how much of it is organic. I haven't looked into that, but it does seem like a lot of attention is being drawn by by this series. And I'm I don't honestly know that much about it. And I'm 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 hoping you can you can tell me what this is and why the the why the buzz is so loud about it. Uh, well, you know, it it started off as a as an indie animated pilot um, that was dropped ah. on, on on YouTube in 2019, and it became like such a phenomenon. There, you know, there were channels built to analyze it. There are, I mean, there it's to the point where like there before there even was a show greenlit, there were influencers in the has been fandom sphere who had just made their following through the show. It's That's uh, fucking crazy. Yeah. Mm. I mean, the, the people like ravenously ate this up. And I think part of that is it has a lot of uh, great combinations of traits. Uh, it is, you know, kind of a raunchy R rated comedy. It is a cartoon. It is a musical. And I think when all those things combine, you know, you, you can appeal to a lot of people. And it's also kind of I think everyone likes to see a unique genre blend like that. And I, I mean, I think the the closest thing I could maybe compare it to is the Book of Mormon, uh, yeah. which but also like the Book of Mormon is not a grounded story, but it does take place on Earth starring humans. And and this also has that, uh, uh, shall we say, like tumblr appeal of like interesting character designs and like lore and world building and and that kind of stuff that really piques interest uh in in the online fandom space as well that's awesome so what's it about so it it is about uh the princess of hell running a hotel in hell to rehabilitate sinners so that they can go to heaven and sort of solve the solve hell's overpopulation problem by creating a pathway to redemption. And she is very, I think part of, of the heart and soul of the show is really this character, Charlie, who is, she's the princess of hell. And she is very much like a Disney princess in a setting that could not be further from a Disney princess set. <laughs> and I think Got that it. juxtaposition is definitely like core to the, the heart and soul of the show. And after the big response it got in 2019, it got optioned by A24, who shopped it around a little bit and then uh, thought, you know what, why don't we just independently finance and produce a full season of the show, which they did. And then once they did that, um, Prime Video watched. The, I, I think there were a, a few contenders there, but 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 Prime Video had like a really, really big response to the mm. season that they produced. Mm -hmm. And uh, not only did they buy it, but they bought it and a second season simultaneously, which actually we're working on now. We're finishing up the music for season two. We're getting ready to record it. It's uh, it's all happening very fast. Holy hmm. shit. So given the time frame here, can I assume that this is what you were doing during quarantine? Uh, to an extent. Yeah, it's I, I kind of the, the timeline for animation. There is a lot of hurry up and wait in that when we got on board for the music for season one, we we did 16 songs in, you know, eight to 10 weeks, which was just like an unprecedented level of just just Holy working constant. Yeah. yeah, like we were we were in the weeds uh, every day, all day. 
uh, my wife did not have a husband for, you know, a, a <laughs> month or two. Uh, and uh, once, you know, but once you're through that, then you record the cast, you composite them into the track, and then you're just kind of waiting for 18 months for them to finish all the animation. Oh and then God. once the animation gets finished, then there's another pass where it's at, where, you know, oh, maybe we should mess with the production in this section of the song because the animation feels bigger and the song needs to feel bigger here. It's right. interesting. It almost feels like adding a scoring element to already pre-written songs so that they really suit the animation better. But also, right. generally speaking, because the animators have the songs in advance, normally it's more the other way around where they are really, you know, choreographing to our work i'm endlessly fascinated by songwriters anytime we've had a musician on the show i'm just like they're like the fucking sphinx to me right like you i don't understand if i have to here i'll give you an example from my perspective right sure like i had a column with uh fangoria like their website that was supposed to run every friday and when i initially agreed to this i was like well, I don't want to get back to where I was in my last job or it was kind of my job to have two or three editorial takes every week. And that was just a lot coming up with that amount of shit. And but like one thing a week, surely I've got one thing a week that I can extrapolate into like a thousand word fucking piece. Right. And what I found was within weeks of starting that process, I was bone dry. on fucking ideas, <laughs> And I was like scrambling every week to keep up with it. And eventually I was just like, I can't I can't do this along with everything else that I'm doing. So we got to fucking just cut it um, when the inspiration was there was not there. It just was not there. Mm. So to hear that you're writing that many <laughs> songs in that limited a time frame, like what the fuck are you supposed to do if the inspiration doesn't strike you as a songwriter? So that that has been like a great challenge to figure out. And, <laughs> you know, the lovely thing about a deadline like that is that you figure it out or you fail. So, you know, <laughs> right. I didn't really have a choice. Um, and uh, I, I think part of it was I had to, even though it is art, I had to stop looking at it as though like I'm making art because when I, when I'm in that kind of headspace, I'm like, well, what is, what is my inspiration? What is my connection to the material? And, and to start looking at it as like, yes, I'm making art, but like, I'm, I have a job uh, and, right, right. and, and, yeah. to, and, uh, but I think also one of the things that, that makes not, and, 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 you know, like not having to like wait around for inspiration is obviously it makes my job faster. And I think since working on season one of the show, I have become a way faster songwriter just because mm. now I know how to tap into like not having any ideas of my own. Uh, but but I will say like season one, it, it, it was never that hard to jump into a song because this piece of animation is very much, you know, I, I would describe as like auteur animation mm. in that, you know, our, our creator, uh, the series creator, Vivienne Medrano, has such a clear vision and a sense of like what every sequence in the show is trying to accomplish and really like what's going through the characters' heads at that time. And in fact, even like what 
music stylistically mm. belongs to the characters, which is something that sets this apart from almost any musical that I've ever worked on or, or most musicals mm -hmm. I've, I've listened to, is that most musicals have one consistent sonic palette from start to finish. And that is largely because most musicals are on stage and, you know, you have limitations on stage. You have only one orchestra pit with a limited number of people and a limited number of instruments. So you can mm -hmm. only, you know... You can only paint with so many colors, whereas this not having that limitation, uh, we sonically, this show does not have, you know, one sound, but rather the sounds belong to the different characters. And mm. so that also made having to find inspiration much, much simpler mm. because it's like, well, this character is kind of like steampunk and this character's kind of like pop music. So now we're going to make a <laughs> steampunk pop song about you know, the, the, whatever this scene needs to accomplish. And part right. of it too, is like the process becomes a lot of, a, a lot of improv. It is, you know, not dissimilar from like how they shirt, shoot curb your enthusiasm where mm. it's like, we mm -hmm. know what we need to accomplish in this scene. We just don't know what the words are. And that's very right. much the way my co-writer Andrew Underberg and I approach writing for the show in that, like we have, you know, we have a goal and we have characters and styles and then we just kind of like noodle around and and mm -hmm. play around with different ideas and and really just kind of like he'll improvise around a little bit on piano. I'll do it a bit on guitar. And then eventually we'll have a melody where we go, oh, yeah, that's kind of a sticky melody. I think people will like that and and go from there. Yeah. Sometimes having that variety is a it, it really is the the secret sauce to well, creatively, the, I'm, I'm trying to think the only thing that I've done in my life that's anywhere like this is I ran a, a, a daily column on back in the ain't it cool days called a movie a day where I would write about uh, a movie every day that I hadn't seen. So I would mm. watch a movie and review a movie every day, which, you know, for a, a young 20 something guy at the time, I was just like, oh, I can pull this off. Now I, I think about that and just like I crumble into a pile of dust going, how the fuck did I have the stamina for, for right. that? And I, I ran it for over 200 days. It was like 215. Wow. Directly. Uh, but there were the whole conceit of that, like, and I'm still really proud of it because I think it's a really fun idea was like I really wanted to expand my movie knowledge. And so what I would do is I would connect every movie that I was reviewing to the one before it in some way. Oh, that's so, really interesting. So there was like Paul Newman. I started off with a Paul Newman movie called Harper. And then like, so then I did a couple of Paul Newman movies and then I spun off from that to like, Oh, there's a character actor in this one that was in this 1940s noir. And then there was the cinematographer of this noir was the cinematographer of this seventies political thriller, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing. And I would use that as a, as a connecting tissue. And I can tell you just, you know, from my little experience doing that, like when I would go, oh, I'm just going to stay in noir for a while because this person did like eight noir movies. And by the end of the noir run, I'm like, I'm just dying. I'm like itching to get to <laughs> something that's has some color to it, that has some pop, that has some hope and, you know, cheer to yeah, it, you know? Yeah. And so the fact that you, you were working under such constraints but with the ability to to sprinkle in that variety i can only imagine is is what kept you sane throughout that process oh absolutely and also yeah. like i could not have done this by myself the fact that i was part of a co-writing duo was yeah. instrumental to this because like left to my own devices i would have succumbed to despair instantly <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I would have just walked into the ocean but i i thankfully you know like being able to bounce stuff off of someone else makes makes 
any form of creating so much easier and just like less mentally taxing because it feels like I agree. you're sort of charging your battery socially while you're using it up mentally. Right. Yeah. And especially if you're working alongside someone where your natural dynamic kind of feels like you're sharpening each other in the, oh, yeah. in the way that you're bantering or creatively strategizing. You know, I, I, I absolutely know what you mean and, and agree with it. Like, well, also, I, it's so hard to self-edit, you know, like the, sure. the idea that, you know, and, and obviously I've done a lot of songwriting on my own, but like I get stuck all the time when I'm writing by myself because I'll start with like a shitty idea and then I'll have and then I'll just be faced with like, oh, I got to make this better. Whereas with him, it's, you know, I'll start with a shitty idea and he'll go, oh, here's a way that that idea could be a little less shitty. And then mm. I'll go, oh, here's a way that that idea can be a little less shitty. And yeah. like, we'll we'll just de-shittify right. each other. Whereas <laughs> the like the mental effort to just like look at your own shitty idea and go, oh, boy, what do I do about this? Like, it's a completely different mental headspace to be in totally now you have uh composed an original production for uh original song for uh for us at the king cast um that is really top notch we're gonna play it on the air in full uh i think people are gonna really enjoy this but um it's 43 minutes long everybody prepare <laughs> yourself this is gonna be the easiest cujo episode ever yeah it's a uh, bit of a rock opera yeah like can you um Absolutely. Please intro the song. Yes. Yeah. I mean, part of it was I felt I, I have at this point been doing a bunch of press around Has Been Hotel, and I feel like it's so hard to describe what I do and to give people a sense of like, you know, we start with very little and then in a very short period of time, we need to put together a song. And so I thought it felt thematically appropriate if I was going to be plugging has been on the show to essentially like do what I do for has been for the King cast. I did a little bit of brainstorming and I definitely, I bounced some ideas off Scott uh, where, <laughs> Hey, you Good know, ones too. Here, yeah, here are some, here are some fun kind of Broadway stylistic pastiches and King titles. And I think, and, and what I eventually settled on was, and I didn't even really settle on a style at first, but uh, what I settled on was a, a sort of uh, a big show-stopping number from a Cujo musical that does not exist. And it's called Bat Blood. And <laughs> it is, it, it takes place right after Cujo has murdered Gary, the neighbor. Mm -hmm. And it is, it is this moment uh, where Cujo can feel himself changing. Oh, I should also note that it is sung by Cujo, and Cujo is yes, played by yes, a human is. actor in the stage show. And it's yeah, that, that's the other thing. Like I, I actually I went to school to be a playwright, so one of the things I think about when it comes particularly to writing for a stage musical is like what is the staging? How is what is the production look like? And this is in the staging of the Cujo musical. Uh, the, you know, Cujo is played by a sort of a lead actor who gets to have his sort of Jekyll and Hyde moment. It, it, yes. it, I mean, playing Cujo, <laughs> when Cujo's played by a human, it really does actually feel like a werewolf story, uh, just by virtue of like having a guy singing as Cujo. Uh, and, and I really tried to use that and, and have this guy feel like he's transforming, and he doesn't know what that means for him, but also like 
this is the moment where he really embraces his dark side. So in a way, it's kind of his like, let it go from Frozen. Uh, <laughs> stylistically, it's not, you know, it's not like a, a Robert and Kristen Lopez song. It's stylistically, I thought, you know, a Cujo musical, particularly any horror musical, I, I always think of like Jim Steinman and Meatloaf. Uh, <laughs> I think a little bit about uh, songwriter Lawrence O'Keefe, who did an amazing horror musical called Bat Boy, the musical based on the, mm -hmm. the, the I think it was the Weekly World News articles about the fake Bat, yes. Bat Boy child. Yeah. And a great musical and really underappreciated for for those of you listening who love a, a good kind of obscure musical. It's fantastic. Um, and so I tried to like take that influence of like piano rock and a little bit of like rock organ and stuff like that. And 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 that felt very kind of like, you know, 90s gothic stage musical because also <laughs> you know in the kayfabe of of Cujo the musical I would say this is like 94 95 and, uh, <laughs> and oh there's there I feel like I feel like the the Cujo musical there's there's lore. That sounds about right yeah um uh, in my in my mind I'm thinking the people who who tried to launch this were like in the the two or three shows of the carry the musical that happened and was mm -hmm. just like their their brains caught on fire. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, this show it closed in previews, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> people, uh, because it, it is based on just by by virtue of the of the rights situation. It is based on the book and not uh, not the movie. So Tad dies, and people did not. Uh, receive that very well, so it closed. It closed very fast, and they actually killed a living human child at the end of every. They did production. every yeah. time. Which, every yeah. time it, which um, later production. inspired the Prestige. Yes, <laughs> it was the same child. Yes, yeah. Sorry, spoilers for people who haven't seen the Prestige. All right. Yeah. Um. All right. Do you guys want to run it? Yeah, let's run it. This is Bat Blood by Sam Haft. Gary, get up, pick your head up, please be awake, I made a mistake, Kujo be cool, where is his face, oh god, I think that he died, why am I so satisfied, <laughs> oh god, ar, ar. I don't know what I am becoming My flesh is fire Lit with the dark desire But since that vampire bat fang stuck me I feel the wolf inside The wolf that cannot hide And I'm petrified of what I'll be when my change is complete But since I've eaten Gary's face I like the taste of human meat I got this crazy urge to kill My teeth are bared, my veins are filled with rat blood I'm foaming at the mouth just to give you a kiss of the bat blood And I'm craving something fresher than kibbles and bits Tonight I'm thinking I might succumb to the hunger Don't blame me, it's the bad blood, bad blood. 
from a bad vibe. I was a good boy, a docile pup, taking a nap next to the pickup truck. It was an uneventful summer, kicking back and chasing tail till I had it with a rabbit. Now I'm terribly ill. A virus in my every cell, a St. Bernard sent straight from hell. Beautiful. Bravo. Holy shit. Gets catchy as hell. Gets better every time I hear it. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's tremendous it, it was, work. It was so fun to do. And I, I, I do I do think that in many ways is kind of like the secret sauce to the productivity there is just like it's this is the this is a very fucking fun job to have. Yeah. yeah. Right. Doesn't feel like work. No, no, it's, you know, it is, it's creative play. Um, and, you know, that's the kind of thing where I feel like even if I wasn't doing it professionally, I would do it for pleasure. And, and, totally. and this was certainly an instance of doing that. Uh, and I, I yeah, I, you know, I think it, it well, just we're honored to have it. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I should. I I'll drop it on on Spotify and say the kings, the king casts bat blood. Uh, and we we didn't ask you uh, about this, but we're gonna go ahead and say now that you are now going to compose a song for every title we do every week. <laughs> yes, every single one. Um, and so, gone is the old intro with all the movie quotes and stuff. And now we're gonna have a Sam Haft original every week. Get used to it. <laughs> uh, it it was. Uh, uh, it was very, very, very fun to make. Um, well, and, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, I was, I, you know, I think once I, the wh- where I, I started with the chorus, I was, you know, I, well, I started with the title. I started with Bat Blood. I thought that would be like a really great, you know, kind of big Sounds title like number song. there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, of course. You know, Meatloaf loves bats. Uh, no, loves big it. fan of bats. Uh, and I, I am also like, I am a huge meatloaf and Jim Steinman fan. My first ever tape cassette. Uh, well, actually my first ever tape cassette was where have all the cowboys gone by Paula Cole. But my second one nice. was bad out of hell. And, uh, I've, I've always been a, a very big fan of that. And, and I also something that I re appreciated rewatching Cujo this morning, uh, is the, there's the reference to Jaws that, uh, that Tad sort of acts out Jaws at the, at the breakfast table in the morning. And that sense of, oh, well, how can I integrate that in a musical sense? And it's with uh, musicians call this chromaticism, but this just really means like using neighboring notes with, you know, where Jaws is the most famous soundtrack version of the. Bah. So to, to reverse that and go bump, 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 bump for Bat Blood uh, mm-hmm. at the end of the chorus was <laughs> a sort of a subtle nod to that. Uh, yeah, I just I, I I feel great about it and I'm glad I could make it for you. <laughs> well, we, we thank you once again. You knocked it right the fuck out of the park. Thank you so um, much. I suppose at this point in the show, we should uh, we should obtain from you your Stephen King origin story. Well, uh, definitely. My, I mean, I'm sure this is tale as old as time, but it's The Shining. Uh, sure. I had 
I had seen bits of the TV it on television as a kid mm-hmm. and, uh-huh. uh, you know, quickly changed the channel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but The Shining was the first uh, King adaptation that I, that I watched like start to finish. Um, and mm-hmm. I'm sure that's the case for a lot of people. And I'm sure Stephen King is not that happy that that, that is the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, I, I, you know, it definitely, it was not only that, it was my first horror movie and, oh, wow. uh, I found it, uh, very, very spooky. And then my second horror movie after that was, Drag Me to Hell, which was a very, it's a very different kind of movie. You're right. Um, wow. So you're watching these. How old are you at this point? I will say I successfully avoided horror movies for a very long time. So I, I think I watched The Shining when I was like 16 and Drag right Me to on. Hell probably like two or three months after that. No, no. what? No. Drag Me to Hell came out when I was older than that. Uh, so yeah. uh, Drag Me to Hell was what? 08? Does that make sense? Does that sure. sound right? 08, 09? Sounds about right. Yeah. So then, wow. So it was probably, so I guess The Shining kept kept me off of horror movies for for a couple of years. I, I have <laughs> since gone back and, and you know, rewatched a lot of, of horror titles, but I definitely, in my teens, I was, I, I was horror cautious. Uh, and I was, ju- well, I mean, also uh, just a, just a big old, old wimp. And uh, right. there was just a lot of stuff where, I mean, I had I had bad dreams for, for a month after seeing The Shining of just like, you know, seeing Scatman Crothers with an axe in his head. Sure. Uh, and and that was that was, you know, that was my my intro. But then uh, I, I I I think in, in terms of other uh, King adaptations, uh, the second King movie I watched was Carrie um, and. Uh, I had a ton of friends who were really, really, really into the Dark Tower. No, not the books, not the film. Uh, right, and right. It, it would be odd if it was the other way around. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there Fuck are the books? books but that, <laughs> yeah. That, that movie, I'll tell you what, Elba boy. Movie? Yeah. yeah. I, I have not seen the movie, but uh, yeah, that was like, I remember that being kind of a phenomenon uh, among among my peers and and you know of course I've I've seen since I've seen Shawshank I've seen the other newer Carrie I've seen both new it's and the old it mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I mean the that's the thing about about King too is like you will you will see a movie and you'll be like yeah that was a fun movie oh that's a King movie I didn't realize it um, yeah he can sneak oh up yeah on you Pet like Cemetery uh, mm-hmm. uh, the, you know it's it's gone on and on since then but the first my first taste of horror period was uh, was was The Shining. Did mm. you watch it by yourself? No, no, I I watched it with a girl I liked, and she was much less scared than I was. <laughs> <laughs> I was well. I, I and and I should add. You know, like the closest I had come to a horror movie at that point was uh, I had seen Van Helsing in, in theaters. And, oh, God. and uh, you know, this is I would not describe Van Helsing as a scary movie, um, but I no. screamed in the movie theater. <laughs> oh, my God. Van Helsing. In fact, in, there's a moment where. I don't remember what ca- there's like a troll looking character who is maybe supposed to be like Mr. Hyde or something. I don't know. But uh, it's been a long time since I've seen Van oh, yeah, Helsing. Yeah, he is in that. Yes. Uh, yeah. Van Helsing does try to create kind of like a, a 
a dark universe before the dark universe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and there's a moment where I wouldn't even call it a jump scare, but, but you know, he pops into frame and I heard someone shriek in the theater and I looked around to see who it was and then realized it was me. <laughs> so, so it took me a while to get into horror. Um, and then once I did, like, I, I have really kind of expanded my palette. I, I, I like a lot of horror now. And, and also like getting into international horror was exciting. Um, I've now like, I, I love Korean horror movies. Yeah. Um, and and so so like now Korea now I'm a real they make great horror movies oh yeah oh my god and and I think one of the best si- well uh, one of the best serial killer thrillers I've ever mm. seen uh, I don't know that I would ne- I mean it's not not a horror movie uh, is uh, I think it's called Chaser oh Chaser yeah Chaser's good I thought you were gonna say I saw the devil <laughs> oh I like I saw the devil I thought uh, you were gonna yeah. say Memories of Murder so Memory, so different. Memories of Murder I, I don't know that I'd call it a thriller but I love Memories it's really yeah. uh, probably one of my 10 favorite movies of all time yeah uh, a huge fan of Memories of Murder I've I've I feel like I've seen it like six or seven times and every time I see it I catch something new it's I I I am obsessively in love with Memories of Murder but but yeah Chaser uh like in terms of more it, more like serial killery, thrillery right, right. type thing. Fucking love that movie. Yeah, nice. Do you have you read any of the books? Are you a reader at all? A bit. Um, I I read. Pet it's okay Cemetery. to say you haven't if you have. Yes. No, I read <laughs> Pet Cemetery, but I don't think I've read any other King books. Right on. Did you have any thoughts on the the experience of reading that? Uh, presumably after seeing it. Uh, no, I actually I watched I I read it first. Oh, that's um, interesting. Yeah. Uh, so you weren't really horror averse in the written word so much yeah. as visually. Well, I also like I didn't again, you know, like I didn't know it was going to be scary, really, um, <laughs> which, you know, I should have. Yeah, what did the cover look like? Cemetery. <laughs> uh, you know, I I know <laughs> I know in 2024 now, but like, you know. You know what a cemetery is now? I <laughs> Well, the, listen, there are animals on the cover. Maybe it's it's a friendly <laughs> tale about friendship. Yeah, I probably thought it was a spin-off of like Homeward Bound. Uh, no, but it's you know, it it is it, it's much less scary on the page. Uh and, and I think you know, I think that is also probably how how Stephen King gets away with being so uh, you know getting back into into like thinking about King before com- coming on the show. Just like he really like a lot of harm comes to kids. A lot of yeah. harm comes to kids. Sure, and it's one of those things too where I never really used to have an an issue with that in content uh, until I became a dad, and now I find mm. that like really and and so I think. Had I, you know, I think watching Cujo before I had a kid and after having a kid, extremely different experience. Mm. So, so different because now, you know, there are there are elements that are a little like, you know, kid actors. I will say the actor who plays Tad is a very good child actor. But, uh, you know, like you sometimes it's not that affecting and it's like, okay, yeah, it's drama. But I think. Uh, after having a kid really, really changes that dynamic because it it kind of forces you to put yourself in that position. And like, you know, the entire time watching, I'm like, man, what would I what would I do? How how would I beat the dog? 
Uh, and uh, and Before I think you it, had a kid, you would have just kicked the little boy out the car <laughs> and then run the other way. <laughs> and now, not so much. Yeah, yeah, you know, you have you have it changes your priorities around. <laughs> It'll do that. We've heard that yeah. from a few different parents yeah. on the show. You know, that's not an not an uncommon sentiment. I don't, you know, I don't have any intention of having children, uh, but I can imagine very easily how that would be the the case because. You know, I have a thing about like uh, dogs being hurt in movies. Totally. Like, if I hear a dog has been hurt in a movie, I'm like, I'm not going to see that shit. I don't want to fucking. Yeah. Know, it took me years to see John Wick because I was just I whatever I had built up in my head based on that scene that kind of kicks off the movie uh, was pretty fucking gnarly. And it's not, you know, it's, totally. it's rough, but it's not like, you know, uh, graphic or gratuitous or anything like that. So well, actually, I wonder if that changes your experience of Cujo in the opposite direction. Hmm. Not really. Um, I feel bad for Cujo. I've yeah. always felt bad for Cujo. He's sort of in the mold of the classic Universal Monsters in that he's like ultimately a tragic sort of figure, right? Yes. And, yeah. and so I've always felt that way about him, but I also feel like like, I don't want to see a dog get hurt on screen, but also if it's Cujo, now we're talking about something else. We're talking yeah. about like a multi hundred pound St. Bernard that's foaming at the mouth and wants nothing more than to rip your head off your shoulders. He's a monster. Uh, by the you're time justified in defending yeah. yourself at that point. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, totally. And and I actually, I, I think that that the, the tragedy of of Cujo is it, I think it's you know I think it's very interesting especially the sense of like uh I, I don't know I mean you know Stephen King has that the the whole sense of like oh is everything is like kind of like a little wink wink connected Maine is a spooky place and yeah. uh you know I I I wonder if there's an element because uh, I have I have not read the book of Cujo I'm aware that Tad dies at the end uh, right. that's, and that is like, and that is, I think the main difference. I don't remember if in the book Cujo also kills Joe Camber's family, uh, that no. maybe that happens. I don't, I don't recall. Um, okay. Yeah. So that's, then it's that's just like really, the movie where they, they like the wife leaves cause she won the, the small yes. lottery or whatever and, and is taking the kids and running. Yes. And Joe's going to go to Boston husband. for, I think he said like broads, booze and baseball, Yeah, <laughs> which is the holy okay, okay, man. Dude, dude's uh, rock, you, I guess. Uh, well, yeah. it's really interesting to me. It's really interesting to me that you haven't read the book because the song that you wrote feels like a deep nod to the book because the book has a lot of uh, chapters that are told from Cujo's point of view. Yeah. Um, well, I, and I, and so when you had this, you know, this "What's Happening to Me" song told from Cujo's point of view, it very much is aligns with uh, the narrative in the book. You know, because sure. you have. You have and it's a there's the the same back and forth that Cujo has because he he is just this lovable family dog. There's a moment in the movie where they shoot it very much like a um I don't know like a seventies uh, British horror movie where the, it's the little boy in the fog and Cujo comes out of the fog yeah and, yeah and like growls at him and he's like hey what's what's up buddy you know and in the book that scene's there too but like in you hear it from or you see it from Cujo's point of view where it's like he recognizes quote the boy at that point and that's mm. his boy and that's what stops him from attacking but like he has this push to to attack it because he's he's in pain the dog is in pain the rabies is taking over loud sounds are affecting him all this stuff but it's all told from Cujo's point of view 
Um, See, so, that's, that's yeah. great. I mean, and, you know, I as I said, in kayfabe, this is an a- adaptation of the book. And I did, yes. you know, I did my research on the book, but I also like, transparently, I'm working on season two of the show right now. So I was I, I was like, I'm probably a little ambitious to to read and watch Cujo right before the yeah. show. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you uh, don't but, the, especially for this show and especially for this fourth episode, I guess that we've done on, is this the fourth Vespi? I don't know. It's, it feels more recent because we, we just did that commentary on the movie with Stephen Graham Jones. So we just, oh, that's about true. Cujo, which uh, we should probably you know, say, I think we're probably going to drop that in the main feed at some point uh, for everybody to listen to, but that's our Patreon exclusive. Uh, th- that we did, but it, Stephen Graham Jones is, is, you know, it's so good and so fun, you know, every once in a while we like uh, as a treat to drop, drop in those things into the main feed. So yeah, but I do think like it is even, even though, you know, obviously the film is generally not, you know, does not feel like it's from Cujo's point of view. I would say like the, the periods of time in the film in which Cujo is transforming do feel like Cujo is the POV character because we're sure. following him around like Joe and Gary and they're all making these loud sounds. And and I feel, you know, like we're seeing Cujo change and we're seeing Cujo in pain. And it it yeah. felt like, OK, like there really there is a there is a point of view here, uh, even though it's not that much explored in the film. Because I feel like once Cujo changes, the Cujo no longer becomes any gets any sense of that, you know, camera sympathy. Whereas, right. yeah. well, yeah, then it, like you mentioned, it Jaws is is uh, brought up at the beginning as a joke. You know, Tad doing the fin at the dinner table and everything. Uh, but then it, that's kind of what it becomes. Instead of being on a, a boat in the middle of the ocean, it's you know the mom and the son stuck in a car with with. Right. the the creature out there the the menace out there somewhere and you can't see it the totally pov does shift it's really interesting yeah. and i do love like what i would describe as an unconventional shark movie uh like you know this comes to mind but like also nope from i was it last year or the year before loved mm-hmm. nope i and i think you know there are so many ways that people have found to make jaws without making jaws and <laughs> that is it, it's so cool to watch like yeah. a a, a take on that and i'm yeah. sure like even if that was not at all an influence for king definitely an influence for the movie and not at that of course right no it's it's funny you say that because the the surest way to fuck up a nod to jaws is to put a shark in the movie there, <laughs> yes, there are no 100 there are no i can count the amount of good shark movies on one hand but you want to make jaws but uh, you know, but put an alligator in it. It fucking it's almost always a recipe for success. I don't know why a gator or a croc uh, works in that way, but you show me a crocodile movie. Odds are it's going to be a fun movie. Totally. I don't know why that is, but it's true. You show me a shark movie. One out of every 10 will be worth watching. I, yeah. I, I don't Very I don't true. know what the secret is there, but uh, but yeah. Thank you, Rob Zombie. We're here with the uh, mid-show ad break, and uh, we have a new sponsor on the show this week, don't we, Eric? We do indeed. Uh, these are the folks over at Good Shop, and uh, I have been drafted into telling you about uh, their product. Listen, everyone wants to start off the year on the right foot. Um, I've got a big trip coming up this summer. I'm trying to trying to trim down on the on my girlish figure uh, back at the gym, you know, after a, an extended holiday uh season where i probably put on 
uh, all the weight that I lost while I was going to the gym before the holidays fucking started. But that's not neither here nor there. <laughs> um, the point is, I want to be making sure that I'm eating well and that I have enough energy to go to the gym and still record this show and, you know, do everything else I need to do in a single day. But I'm not going to run to the butcher every day just to get a fresh cut of quality meat. That's just not going to happen. That's why Good Chop is such a lifesaver for me. There's fully customizable boxes of high quality meat and seafood delivered straight to your door on your schedule. The products are vacuum sealed and frozen at peak freshness so you can stock your freezer and cook them whenever you want. Choose from over 70 high-quality cuts, 100% grass-fed ribeyes, USDA prime filet mignon, free-range and organic chicken breast, pork tenderloin, and thick-cut bacon, just to name a few. They also offer sustainable and wild-caught seafood, salmon, Pacific cod, scallops, shrimp, you name it. You know, we we have both uh, submitted to, to sample some of uh, Good Chop's wares. We don't know what they're going to send us yet, mm. but uh, looking over their uh, their menu, there's a ton of shit on here. I would like they oh, got yeah. baby back ribs. They got pork ribs. They've got shrimp, halibut. Uh, they've got multiple different kinds of sausage, including pork chorizo sausage, with which I'm a big fan of. I what, noticed they even have some wagyu ground, ground beef. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Very good for yeah. burgers and what have you. Indeed. What else are you seeing on there that you're into? Oh, shit, I'm a big ribeye steak man, fan, and they have some USDA prime ribeyes on here that are calling my name. I'm telling you what. Hell yeah. I'm really excited. I, ju- I just said this, but I'm going to say it again just in case. They have crab cakes. I'm a big uh-huh. crab cake boy. Love a good crab cake. Unlike many other companies, Good Shop sources its meat and seafood exclusively from American farms and fisheries, so you can support local family farms and independent ranchers right here in the U.S., and it won't cost a fortune. Good Chop's price per meal starts at just $3.74, and uh, the folks at Good Chop especially pride themselves on sourcing meat that comes with no antibiotics or added hormones ever. No artificial ingredients, only the good stuff. They're so confident in the quality of the cuts, they're offering a 100% money guarantee. Love Good Chop or get your money back. So go to goodshop.com slash kingcast120 and use code kingcast120 to get $120 off across your first four boxes. That's code at KingCast120 at goodshop.com slash KingCast120 for $120 off. That's a lot of dollars off. Uh, it is. Well, well done. You take advantage of that. Um, I think it's time to get back to the show. What do you think? Let's do it. We have, we have covered Cujo quite a bit. <laughs> and... Yeah. And something I'm glad this episode is happening at the top of the year because, you know, this is something that Vespi and I are kind of wrestling with. uh, And we've been doing this for several years in that we kind of run out of shit to say about some of these titles. You know, there are titles like The Shining where we can go long on The Shining in a million different directions. You know, you can that's a very rich well to be drawing your, your water from. Right. Uh, Cujo, not so much. There's, there's not a lot to hold on to here. It's a very surface level story. We don't really have much to say about the movie. It's, it's, we, we like it a lot. Uh, we think it's kind of underrated. Uh, we like the book. We've talked about how, you know, this is written during, uh, like the height of King's, uh, powers as a drug user and alcoholic, but we're hoping that maybe, you can help us find a new angle on Cujo. Mm. 
Can you think of a, a, a well, possible fucking avenue into a discussion about this story <laughs> that we might not have hit on at this point? Well, let's we'll let's throw th- let's throw some stuff at the wall because I haven't heard your previous four episodes on Cujo. Is this number five or is this number four? I don't know, Vespi. Do you know? Not offhand. Someone was keeping a fucking spreadsheet at some point. Um, okay, and so I I wish I still knew where the link to that was. Mm. Well, one thing that I found uh, that there was a lot of a, a really interesting parallel moment uh, was when. When she's pushing Kemp off herself, when Donna's pushing Kemp yeah. off herself, and when Donna's pushing Cujo off herself, which I mm. thought was kind of interesting and kind mm. of intentional. Um, and so with particularly with you bringing up this being uh, written during a period of of Stephen King, also like, you know, as a user looking at himself, maybe being like, I don't really recognize myself and what I can do to someone. Uh, and then, and then also like bringing in the angle of like, you know, Kemp as this sort of beast of a man, uh, I think is, is perhaps is that unplumbed territory. I like the idea of Kemp as a stand in for Cujo and vice versa. Yeah. They are both these like, rabbit animals that are sort of out there fucking hurting families in their yeah, own way. Absolutely. You know? And, and the, and I, do, I, I, I like the idea of this visual parallel of, uh, her like booting Kemp off of her. And also, uh, also the dog. I'm, I feel like you're rubbing right up against the, the, the idea of is King imagining himself as Cujo is this destructive yes. force towards a family. But I don't know if that tracks only because I think the the Kemp comparison is is much more apt. Like mm, if we totally. if we follow the logic of that, then that must also mean that King is sort of putting himself in there as the uh, uh, well, he's not the cuck, but the cucker, I suppose. <laughs> the cucker, the, the cuck dealer. Yes, yes, the cuck dealer. Yeah. What is the what is what is the guy known in a relationship? Like the cuck is the guy who's getting cucked. The right? alpha male. I'm 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 going to look it up. Excellent. <laughs> well, this is the, the there is something there. There is a little meat to this. Uh, I will say this is something that I think uh, um, Stephen Graham Jones pointed out where he was talking about how people have looked at uh, uh, the opening of the the movie is is the 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 big male dog. We, obviously, male. The Cujo's balls are front yeah. and center fucking throughout the entire first four minutes of that movie oh, yes. uh, chasing the, the little rabbit, the little bunny rabbit, the, and, and people have, have drawn that comparison of, of being like aggressive male versus, you know, a more feminine, you know, uh, you know, thing, and I, and I, you know, and I also think like Kemp is an example of like Cujo Kemp starts out as a good boy. And yeah. I think, you know, the moment something happens, all of a sudden Kemp turns much in the yeah. way Cujo turns. Yeah. And I think there is there's definitely something to be said in there. And certainly the fact that like, you know, the the fake out of like, oh, for uh, for Vic, where it's like, oh, did did Kemp take my family? Oh, Cujo's taken my family. Right. Uh, and so I, I think there's there's definitely something there. And I wonder 
to the Stephen King as Cujo component of this, there is also like the element of he is as the author, he is the person making bad things happen to people. And I wonder if at least even if it's not him seeing himself in that position, if it is this sort of guilt a little bit of like, I am destroying this. I have I have created this family and I now I, I am going to destroy them. And a little bit of like that sadness of like, I don't have to do that. But I this is this is yeah. my nature as a writer of the type of stuff I write. He also I mean, this this story always stands out to me as being an example of King describing himself more as the conduit for for story than the godlike author of a story, because it's all in the ending. Every time he's asked or confronted about the ending uh, of the book in which Tad dies, he he always says that like it was as big of a surprise to him as it was to anybody who read it um, and that he didn't intend for that to happen. As a matter of fact, wasn't, you know, going for towards that. But as he was writing, it just happened, he said, you know, and he could. Wow. He felt like he couldn't uh, stop go, it. that it would be inauthentic if he went back and changed it. And so it's like it's. Yeah, I don't know. That, so that in, is really fascinating from a creative point of view. Uh, yeah. th- that you know, like I think there are there are many people who tend to look at themselves as in control, but yeah. I I do love the idea that like, well, I've built the world and I've built the characters and I just set them in motion and what happens happens and I just document it based on knowing the characters in the world as well as I know the characters in the world. That I yeah. mean, that is a very different way to write than most people do. Uh, I I remember going to a talk after, I think it was after three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, with Mm -hmm. uh, McDonough, who talked about his sort of MO when he writes, where he says, well, every three or four pages, I want something to happen that surprises me. And I think, you know, in that way, he kind of like washes his hands of what happens and, and just says, well, like, yeah, I mean, this what what a surprise this this has occurred. Uh, and it is a very interesting way to write where you're not saying like, hey, I have total control, but rather I have total knowledge of the mechanics and the rules of this world. And mm-hmm. I'm just I, you know, I am the dungeon master. I am not the players. Mm. It would seem to be like. Creatively speaking, a very dangerous way to to go about in writing a book. You know, like you're investing a lot of time in that. But my first thought, like when I consider this concept, is what happens when you create the characters? You you you've got the setup, you've got the hook, you you wind up the toy and let it go, and then the characters do, I don't know, annoying things. <laughs> or or things you don't you just absolutely don't agree with or like uh, that that or, or this isn't creatively compelling or or whatever. I suppose so, the answer suddenly to Donna that, Trenton is like, you know, Hitler had some good ideas. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. um, like I'm assuming that in this, uh, you know, um, with this approach, you know, the characters enough to know that that particular thing wouldn't happen. But but still, it seems like you're putting the onus on fictional characters. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I think that that's some high wire shit. Yeah. Uh, oh, absolutely. I, I think it's probably part of why so many people over the years focus on like 
Stephen King's psyche as an individual, mm-hmm. because if he's really just kind of the rules master and everyone, it's just like they're all moving pieces that move autonomously inside mm-hmm. his head, then it, of course you would so focus on a guy whose universe mentally is that where these things happen and that and these are the sort of the conclusions that get drawn from the rules of his universe. Hmm. Uh, whereas, you know, if you're if you're a very different sort of writer, then it's like, well, I think it would be interesting for this character to do that. It's not it's sto- it totally stops. It, it, it's so much more about authorial intent than it is about like your state of mind and the way you look at the world. Because right. if I was writing Cujo and just like setting the characters to go and, and just letting it go from there, I probably would have spent personally a lot of time with Vic and his like marketing issue. Like I, <laughs> you know, it would have been mainly to about get to the like, bottom of that bloody cereal. Yeah, exactly. It would have been primarily a book about the civil case of sharp cereal. <laughs> <laughs> and, and like, it just, it wouldn't have gone there. But I think that's yeah. part of it is not only do you know the characters so well that you know what they're going to do, but really where authorial intent I think enters into it is you're deciding where to place the proverbial camera, you know, like you're, you, it is very much on, even if you were to, to take it face value, where like, he doesn't decide what happens. He just knows what happens and documents it. It is still very much an issue of authorial intent where he, he does decide what we're looking at when it happens. Right. Right. Yeah. I have two thoughts here. Uh, One thing is, King gets dinged for his endings a lot. Um, And I think that maybe some of that comes from the fact that he's not writing from an outline and he's not Mm -hmm. always writing towards an ending and the ending will happen. And sometimes it's abrupt ending. Sometimes it doesn't, it it feels like, uh, you know, the hand of God ending from the stand or whatever, where it's like, where, where the fuck did that come from? You know, sometimes that that can, can happen because of that. But then the other side of it though is, he gets dinged for the endings, but he gets praised for his authentic characters. Like, you know, and yeah. I think the reason why he gets praised for his authentic characters is he's not dictating his characters so rigidly that they're just, you know, fulfilling a plot They're They feel like real people. And that's why people, that's why Stephen King is as beloved as he is. So when you can marry the real people with kind of nailing an ending, you know, uh, sure. thing, that's when you get his masterpieces or whatever. Absolutely. You know, and and, and I that think nobody else can replicate. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you are just, you know, winding the toys up and letting them go, it really is just a matter of randomness where the story ends, you know, if the story ends in a place that like really is nicely wrapped up, you, you would have no idea if you are writing chronologically without a sense of what occurs, but just like knowing who they have been in the past and who they may be in the future. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, you have, you have that and, and it, it leads to surprises and it leads to surprises, you know, not just for us, but obviously like King said for him himself. And I think that's what keeps him engaged. You know what I mean? It's like, that's that there's a reason why I think a lot of people who are masters at their craft will kind of fizzle out. You know, they'll get bored with what they're doing, uh, you know, or whatever, but it, you never, King never seems to have that problem. And I think he doesn't have that problem because he doesn't outline, he doesn't dictate what he writes and he's just so fucking good at writing that it doesn't really matter. <laughs> I think that a lot of people try to do what Stephen King does and fucking fail miserably just because they don't have that innate understanding of the written word, you know, just that 
you know, you have that. Some people are just born to do things, right? That they, they're naturals at it. They study and they hone their craft and they put in the work, but they're naturals at it. And, uh, uh, and King is one of those people and, and he can get away with, with, uh, writing in a way that, that, uh, most people can't. Absolutely. And I, and I think also, you know, what, what you talked about a moment ago, like really hits the nail on the head of why so many King imitators are really just kind of a pale in comparison is that when, particularly when you are writing a thriller or a horror book, it is all about the pacing and the plot and like, where do we end up and what is the twist and all of that. That is so telegraphed in a way that feels, you know, it may be like, tighter as a story but it feels so much less naturalistic and lived in Mm. Hmm. yeah no it's 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 true there's a reason why there's only one stephen king i mean there there are other great horror authors out there and great horror storytellers out there but there there's just something in the 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 secret sauce of of king that makes him wholly unique in the same way that you know the way mark twain wrote you know is wholly unique to mark twain it's like there's yeah, if you're more either going to be trying the, to imp- the ability to do that. There'd be more than one Stephen King, <laughs> right, yeah, right? Yeah, you know that's that's preternatural fucking writer instinct, galaxy yeah. brain shit. That absolutely, I, yeah. and and beyond that, it also comes down to like the sheer volume of work too. Because yeah. if mm-hmm. you are going to sort of set your characters off and let them go in whatever direction they go, there is a massive element of randomness to that, and you have to be able to do that over and over and over and over and over again. Otherwise, you're not going to get to like the really great pieces of work. And I think so to not just have that talent to like create these really organically developed characters, but also to be able to do it at such volume and such scale is is definitely part of the sauce, too, because if, you know, as you said, like some of the some of the endings like really wrap up really great. Some of them don't. But without the volume, you wouldn't be able to you wouldn't necessarily be able to get to those where you go oh my god what a masterpiece this is like one of the great pieces of american literature without getting that that kind of volume because of all the randomness of like well this character is going to do what this character is going to do and sometimes that might be satisfying for you as a reader and sometimes it might be upsetting and disturbing or unsatisfying yeah mm-hmm. and he's got to be able to modulate it on the fly you know there there i'm sure there are you know, stories where he, he he starts at the ending or he at least has an awareness of the punchline sure. that he's building up to. Right. And it would also be impossible to, you know, write with this sort of uh, chaotic omnipotence that he for lack of a better term, where like you're you're just letting the characters go after yeah. you've created them and now you can observe them. Um, if he's writing specifically for television, like here I'm thinking about rose red you know Mm -hmm. he couldn't just you couldn't crack open final draft and just be like well here are the characters here's the first 20 (laughs) pages now let's let's see where they take us like yeah it it, a visual medium you got to write to that you're gonna have to have beats every such and such number of minutes you're gonna have to have like set pieces and shit like that so i imagine it's i imagine it's a tool in his arsenal more so than it is a you know a blanket approach to 
to everything. For sure. But, you know, it is that that type of chronological writing certainly is the case with a lot of people. That's I, that's mm-hmm. what I found so striking about that talk with Martin McDonough was that I had never in my life and I went to school to be a playwright and I had never right. in my life heard someone writing for dramatic writing w- entirely chronologically with mm-hmm. no sense of like, I don't know what the next page is. I'm just going to follow them this page and see what happens next and try to surprise myself. It, it just felt so bizarre to hear that that was someone's process that it really sticks with me in this conversation uh, and and would make me very curious if that is also a dimension to to King's screenwriting as well. Here's a question that I think has come up every other time we've talked to we've talked Cujo on the show. Uh, I'll ask you as well. Have you ever had an unpleasant experience with a dog or you know, barring that, like, uh, you ever been attacked by some other kind of animal? Uh, no, no. In fact, I, I feel like I've had uh, largely positive animal experiences. I mean, every, mm-hmm. you know, the closest I get to Cujo is just like, you know, there are some big friendly dogs who will just like bound up to you and bowl you over. But, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> but you, you know, you're, you are feeling uh, an outpouring of enormous love in those moments, yeah. not like tremendous violence and terror. Yeah. My, uh, my, my ex and I shared a dog named Mad Max who we got him. He was very small and rapidly grew. It was like a fucking, what are those things you pay add them to water and they grow to like 500 times their size? They're like sponges, whatever. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's what this fucking dog was like. And by the time she and I split and I left the house like that dog was so big. If it jumped up on you with its paws, it would knock you back. And I'm not like a small dude. Like I'm not I, I got some weight to me like it would fucking it would knock you over easy if you were if you weren't ready for it. Wow. And I went, I, man, I went back over to the house like, I don't know, within the last year or so to to get something and uh, saw Mad Max again. And the, that fucker got even bigger. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know that I'd want to be living with this at this point. He's like a bear in the fucking place. Just <laughs> yeah, his neck, I, like Andre the Giant. It's crazy. Yeah, I've seen some like Great Danes in Newfoundlands, which I and also like I grew up in New York City. So like mm-hmm. the and there are people who have dogs that size in New York. And I do not get it because the amount of outdoor time and energy expenditure needed for an animal that size. I mean, it's like living with a horse. Yeah, it, no I, I, I cannot imagine having to have a Great Dane as an apartment dog. Not to mention uh, the limited fucking square footage you're getting in New York. Oh, my no God. Everyone what. lives like a sardine. And yeah. so, you know, it's the the idea like it, it, it a dog can and also like dogs are so active, too. Uh, you know, right. I have a French bulldog and that is already a lot of like <laughs> energy in the house and a lot of, you, you know, like very, very active kind of frisky dog. Uh, the idea of that kind of energy from a much larger animal in a much smaller place, I like I feel like. It would be like, you know, those people who like adopt a teacup pig and then they realize (laughs) there's no such thing as a teacup pig. This is a full size hog. And then they just need to leave whatever city they live in and move out to the country. And I feel like I would be in the same position where if if I got a dog that big, I would just have to change my life to accommodate the animal. I'm going to sidebar here for a little dog chat because I'm I'm, uh, intrigued by this mention of you having a French bulldog. 
I would really like to get a bulldog. But here's what I hear. They require a lot of upkeep because of the folds in their face and they uh, frequently require surgery to fix that as they get older. Is that true? So not really. I, you know, I think they require upkeep. Yes. But the upkeep consists of, you know, taking a wet wipe to his face every couple right. of days. It's not, you know, people make it seem like a much bigger deal than it is. Sure. Do you have to do that with a Jack Russell? No. But at the same time, you know, I, the, the thing you really need to look out for is like breathing or spinal problems and right. barring either of those, because also, you know, that's the thing is like most domesticated dogs are just totally mutants and you, got, yeah. you, you know you <laughs> they built built for style not for function and i think there's an element of like you need to make sure that that you don't have like a habsburg dog uh and <laughs> beyond that uh it's you know you're 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 fine you know uh, our our french bulldog also has I would say slightly more of an elongated snout than that very like flat kind of pug mm-hmm. pug profile. Uh, and that is also good to look out for because I think that that the sort of the flattening of the face is not very good for breathing. Right. Um, and not to say like I don't have a, a very like snorty bulldog. I think it's I think every bulldog is kind of snorty. But uh, it you know, our dog whose name is Mr. Business biz to his friends. Uh, <laughs> That's a good fucking yeah. dog name. It, uh, our, our dog uh, breathes pretty well for a Frenchie, uh, moves pretty well for a Frenchie. And I think it was just, you know, I think there's an element of kind of luck of the draw. But I also think like do and 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 this is not to say that you should not adopt a dog who has congenital health issues. I think every, sure. you know, every every dog and every creature needs love and a home and so on. But I think, you know, if you are not ready for that dimension of caretaking to be, you know, be aware in advance. I don't think the caretaking is the problem because I fucking love dogs, right? And yeah. if it's my dog, it's going to get like, it's going to be spoiled to death. Absolutely. But what, what concerns me, the costs associated with that, you know, yeah. Um, the and dog also, I like have right now, I have a rent- huh? pet insurance, pet insurance is so wildly insufficient. I, for, was, and, I, it, I thought you were about yeah. to recommend it and I was going to be oh, like, no, oh. <laughs> I, I wish I had a pet insurance recommendation. <laughs> pets are so like all medical stuff with pets. So incredibly expensive. Insanely and it's even the, expensive. The, we had, uh, something where, uh, I, I I have a toddler as well, and he dropped like a couple M and M's on the ground, and our dog ate the M and M's, and I did not know how much chocolate was a bad amount of chocolate. So uh-huh. I, you know, I did my due diligence, and we did like the, called animal poison control and brought him to uh, just to get looked at, and make sure he's fine by uh, a, like a pet ER, and yeah. it just so enormously expensive in money in time for. You know, I mean, and, and and it was hours and hours in, and and I went at night, so it was like two, three in the morning by the right. time I got my my dog back, and they were just like, "Oh yeah, we took a look at him; he's fine." Like that's 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 not a dangerous yeah. amount of chocolate anyway. And fifteen hundred dollars, please. Exactly. And so, mm-hmm. it, however nightmarish the American healthcare system is, the mm-hmm. pet care system is that taken to the most extreme oh totally i have a little chihuahua mix by the name of conan and uh he had some stomach issues like in between 
uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas. So I was in and out of the uh, like the vet with him twice in the space of a couple of weeks. And it was like. I'm going to say like the first time they ended up just giving him uh, some bland wet food, like four cans of that, uh, plus some some sort of shit I had to sprinkle on it, you know, some sort of like, uh, oh, what's the fucking word? It's like protein powder. medicine, Yeah, kind yeah. Of thing? Something along yeah. those lines. Right. Yeah. Um, that was four hundred dollars for, for wow. four cans of food and like, you know, the little powder. And then the, like the follow up that we went on a couple of weeks later was like 250. And I was like, OK, so all of my friends are getting five dollar gift cards to Starbucks this year because that <laughs> is my yeah. present budget, like fucking just gone in the blink of an eye. Yeah. But the thing is, um, he also rarely needs to go to the doctor. Like every time I bring yeah, him in, yeah. like, he's perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with him. You know, it's uh He's not typically a very expensive dog. So in my head, it kind of all evens out. Like if I don't totally, have, totally. I, I got to take him in once a year and it costs me five, six hundred bucks. Well, you know, what is it? And that, also, you know, a he's a chihuahua. Like how much food is he eating? Like his food yeah. budget probably isn't nuts. Um, no, <laughs> oh, really. uh-oh. probably not. <laughs> it's, it's not. It, it really isn't uh, in the grand scheme of things, like especially compared to the other the other dogs I had, which were much larger and they would fuck right. It. They would blow through food like a freight train. It was crazy. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think what yeah. we, what we can all agree on what we're saying here is that if there was universal pet health care, Cujo's rabies would have been nipped in the bud right <laughs> oh, away. Absolutely. And that's our know, fresh take. Or Tad is still still be alive. So yeah. yeah. Finally arrived at it. There, there we is. go. We got we we got it. Yeah. Another and successful I, I, I will one say, in the bag. If, if you are considering a, a French or English bulldog, uh, the mm. two things I would prepare you for is uh, the farts are foul. Like just, oh, yeah. just you, there's just stuff you've never smelled before and you're going to. <laughs> uh, and the other is like the, the neediness is wonderful, but like don't expect to get a moment at home when you are not in physical contact with this animal. Mm-hmm. Well, Conan's pretty clingy. Mm. You know, um, I'm kind of used to that. Also, I like a lap dog. You it's know? not. It's nice. It's nice. Yeah, it really yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. I want to like when I walk in the door, I want the dog to go ape shit. You know, I want it like <laughs> wanting to be near me, you know, on my lap and, you know, that yes. kind of thing. Uh, Conan's in hog heaven because we live with another couple now and now he's got three laps that he oh, can rotate. Oh, wow. Multiple bedrooms. That he what can- a life. Oh, yeah, he's he's in hog heaven over here, boy. I'll tell you what. <laughs> I feel like I'm betraying my cats who are now curled up next to me on the couch as we're recording this fast asleep, doing the little chasing paw movements and stuff and randomly stretching and looking adorable. Uh, but I feel like I'm betraying my cats hanging out with all you dog people. Well, I mean, and we are talking right. about Cujo, which I feel like is uh, is pro cat propaganda. Yeah, there is no there's no cat equivalent of Cujo, is there? No. Not small cats, big cats, maybe. Oh, um, yeah. But you, yeah, you'd have was... to get into like lions and panthers and shit. Yeah. Before. Ghost in yeah. the Darkness. Idris Elba's like, Beast. Oh, fuck, I love Ghost in the Darkness so much. <laughs> that's such an underrated movie. That's that's a movie that nobody ever fucking talks about. And every once Ghost in a while. Ghost in the Darkness? The yeah. Ghost in the Darkness. Yeah. Have you not it's seen it? Mike... I have not. It's Michael, Michael Douglas. Doug... Yeah. Yeah. Go Michael ahead. Douglas, Val Kilmer, uh, hunting killer lions in Africa. Uh, and it is, but it's built like a horror. Michael Douglas is like the quint of lion killers. Right. Ah. uh, 
<laughs> and and he he's brought in to this in the crazy it's based on a a true story but you know quote-unquote true story about this pair of lions called the ghost in the darkness uh that hunted man for sport according to the local legend and they like killed like dozens if not more people uh and so it's it's based on the people that's myth or that story and the mm-hmm. the people that were brought in to, to stop it and it's a fucking great movie it's a that's 90s cool. kind of forgotten 90s movie there, there are mean- a lot of great like 90s like nature horror uh congo comes to mind like well that's 90s great- right yeah, great's a bit of an exaggeration. Well, I mean, one, you know, yes. but it, there are a lot of <laughs> there are a lot of very memorable line I, reads. I love that book, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah I if, love, love that book. If there were, if they remade Cujo, but it was a cat, how hmm. big would the cat have to be for you to find it believable? And it has to remain <laughs> a cat. It can't be a panther. It can't be uh, a lion. I mean. <laughs> The the answer is it wouldn't doesn't work, but you yeah. have to it have to be a Maine Coon or something. Yeah, It'd for have sure. To be one for of sure. these these house cats that are essentially you know uh, small dogs. That's the only way that 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 would even come close. Well, or let me tell you, be undead. You know, then yeah, we're yeah. in a pet cemetery. Well, yeah, pet cemetery. Yeah, supernatural. Well, well, let's you say know, I will say, you know, the day Garfield goes public domain, that movie's coming out in six months. <laughs> let's say in yes. Cujo cat style, it's the uh, uh, it Joe Camber yes. has the garage. Um, yeah. Yes. OK, so he's running like a cat fighting ring out of this place. Mm. Right. And what oh, he's so this doing is like the is, Rambo of cats. Yeah. What he's doing is he's fucking putting like growth hormones and steroids mm-hmm. and all kinds of shit into the cat's food to make them tougher as fighters. Eventually he finds he gets a, a kitten and starts feeding it like this and it mm. just blows up to monstrous size, mm. you know, more than realistic size perhaps, but let's say it's a, I don't know, 50 Pit pound size. Yeah, like yeah. It's yeah. It's the size of a, I'm holding my hands out in front of me. And like that's going to be helpful to y'all. But like, (laughs) oh, that much. Sure. Yeah. Like, I think if it were (laughs) if visually it read as holy shit, that's a huge cat. I could kind of believe that like a cat could. I I just I feel like like a dog could with its jaws. Right. But I imagine like a scenario where this cat's claws are bigger than normal. Maybe it goes right for your fucking eyes. Cats can get up high on a shelf. So maybe yeah, he goes in the true. fucking barn. They are the ambush predators. Yeah. yeah cat Cujo comes down and just fucking shreds his eyeballs out. Right. Yeah. And, you know, now he's defenseless. And now the, well, I guess maybe he like runs. I feel like you're almost face. describing like the predator. Kind of. <laughs> yeah, I guess. What if it can go invisible? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think and a, Joe Camber builds him like a, like a shoulder chair. laser. Yeah. <laughs> I think a 50 to 60 pound cat. I could be convinced of this. What, what breed? Cause I immediately, I, when I think of creepy cats. I think of like the Sphinx cat, like yeah, those that's, fucking it, hairless it monstrosities. Needs to have not a lot of hair. Cause I think long hair on a cat is like, it's going to look kind of like cute and elegant. Whereas right. the hair needs to be short enough to see those like kangaroo muscles. <laughs> you gotta like this cat needs to have visible pecs yeah. right. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah. I, Although there I, is something like, funny about a like a grumpy cat, like a really cute, fluffy, grumpy cat kind <laughs> of cat being a fucking murder machine. Then you're getting into Monty Python territory. A yeah. Little bit, but, uh, but I think, but there is I think like making it hairless also, almost takes it into the realm of body horror. You know, hundred percent. This big, flat, like this sixty-pound ball of flesh, like jumping down on you from a high shelf. Yeah, that would be that twelve would be pound hairless cats are scary. Yeah, for real. Yeah. So something the size of a fucking beanbag chair. Oh, boy, you're not gonna want to meet that. I don't want anything to do with that. Yeah, that is fucking, that is actually that's scarier than Cujo by like a, <laughs> by a very wide margin, just a yeah. massive hairless feline. Imagine it's stalking muscular, around pouncing on you. Yeah. Yeah. Horrifying. Yeah, I could, and, and on also, you know, not for nothing, but it would also be great to just remake Cujo shot for shot, but it was just with a normal house cat and have everyone <laughs> approach it as though it's a giant St. Bernard. That's like, that's a, <laughs> I would I would watch twenty minutes of that. No yeah, <laughs> and Donna Trenton's just like slamming her fist on the on the steering wheel, going, "Why did I leave my laser pointer at home?" <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, it would totally be like a laser pointer, not like telephone calls and stuff distracting. <laughs> oh my it, god, that could be. A I will say, lot. hold on, watching, hold on, don't yeah, let yeah. me lose this thought. If if oh, that could be a like a plot point is. Donna's got, it just so happens, she's got this huge bag of catnip in the trunk, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. So she's like, this is what I'm going to do. Like, when that cat disappears or whatever, I'm going to, like, lead a trail of it away from the car, and hopefully that'll give me time to, like, run to the phone or whatever, right? Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Then we find out that the cat, because of all the steroids it took and growth hormones and shit, is impervious to catnip, and it doesn't mm. work. See, we're cooking wow. with gas here. And, 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 wow. and instead of the bat that she can see as a weapon, that maybe it is the laser pointer. Mm-hmm. Or, or a uh, uh, a stick <laughs> with a, a mouse on a string at the end of it. You <laughs> yeah. Know? yeah. She sees the bat, and instead of using it like a bat, she ties a little dangly thing to the end of it and starts <laughs> wiggling it around. Yeah, that's the way to go. Oh, that's boy. the move. We got to get Blumhouse yeah. on the phone. All right. Yeah. yeah. Cat Joe, let's do this. Yeah. And, and you know, I will say rewatching it uh, this morning, um, it, it it is so there's such a sense of like, this could be a video game. There is something very video gamey about like, I got to distract it and get by myself enough time to like right. go here and do this. And, you know, you've got like Tad's dehydration meter rising throughout. <laughs> yeah. Like, it felt very like, oh, the guys who made the Friday the 13th video game could do a Cujo. <laughs> I would play it. Yeah, fuck yeah. I don't know how fun it would be long term, but I would certainly no. play several rounds. I'd play it once. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yes, a team, a dedicated team should take two years of their lives to make this happen so we can play this once. Yeah. yeah I mean, I'm into it. I, I made Who's a song. Good? Your move, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we should get D. Which, Wallace on the on the horn and, and picture the doing a short version, a short film. Uh, Cat yeah. Joe. Oh, that was another thing video. too. Is that I hadn't realized uh, until until this morning. I was like, oh, that's that's uh, Elliot's mom from ET. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, by the way, I think she is still working today. Oh yeah, oh yeah, she's great. Yeah, yeah no, she, she's yeah. yeah. She, but I think Rob Zombie's the only one who's like. Uh, regularly casting her and stuff but like right she, she, she was in zombies everywhere. halloween yeah 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 and i think she was in his latest one too which i didn't see mm. i'm not the biggest uh, fan of mr zombies uh what the monster output so 
She's in the Munsters? I think she is in the Munsters. So. Oh, shit. Yeah. I only made it through about five minutes of that, but. Um, <laughs> so I didn't. Uh, but I'm yeah. sure she's Save, great, save it for the Zombcast. Yes. <laughs> um. Well, Sam, thank you very much for for being here today. This was this is fantastic. Um, tell people where they can find you, the Living Tombstone, where they can watch Has Been Hotel, all that good stuff. So, Has Been Hotel, the full first season, is available on Prime Video, mm-hmm. uh, and you can find me on uh, Instagram at Sam Haft Music or Twitter, still calling it that at Sam Haft. Yep. Uh, you can uh, also find the Living Tombstone. Uh, on uh, primarily our platform is YouTube. So if you just look up the Living Tombstone, we're we're the that's us. Uh, and <laughs> on socials, we are at Living Tombstone, uh, basically on every other platform. And uh, I hope I hear from you soon. Absolutely, uh, really, you you killed it on the song. You got us through a Cujo episode where we had nothing to fucking say about it. Um, this is this is tremendous work all the way around, and we're, we're honored that you have you've written something for the show. So thank you again. Thank you so much. Care. Well, we we can finally lay Cujo to rest. <laughs> yes, indeed. Many thanks to Sam Haft for not only joining us for a rousing Cujo discussion, but also bringing us an original composition and uh, a beautiful, heart wrenching composition. I will say. Yes, it's uh, it, it, it is so above and beyond. I'm still kind of sitting there going, <laughs> yeah. he actually did that. OK, they, they took took the time. Good. Took that ball and ran with it. And not only that, but uh, Sam has dropped Bat Blood on Spotify today. If you'd like to add it to the uh, the playlist of your choice, that you um, should. should be searchable via his name and that song title. Uh, go have fun with it, folks. Sweet. Yeah. Well, uh, that that was a great kind of curveball episode. We're going back to our normal format next week. Uh, our Valentine's Day episode, by the way, is is a really fun one that we, we just recorded this one yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, the topic is Carrie. Yes. Uh, and our guest is the star of the recent Evil Dead Rise and of the upcoming monolith. Uh, Miss Lily Sullivan, who yes. we found out, even though her her new project, Monolith, is all about a podcaster, she'd never done a podcast before, <laughs> yeah. and uh, was apparently uh, very enough, intimidated. Yeah, which is which is crazy because you listen you listen to the episode like she's she's a total pro. She yeah, like falls right into our particular band of shenanigans and um and she comes up with some really great stuff to talk about Carrie, especially when it comes to the acting angle mm-hmm. on the uh the De Palma film. So Yeah, absolutely. She's yeah. she's a delight. Uh that was a, a really unexpected get. I, I feel like we wanted to get her for Evil Dead Rise and then it didn't work out for some reason. So I'm I'm really glad this opportunity came back around and that uh you know she's she she killed it. You know yeah, so, she, uh, she's great. Get excited about that one, folks. What are we? Uh, what are we doing on the Patreon this Friday? Ooh, this is this is a uh, a fun one. We have a return of Stephen King trivia. Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> this this Friday, <laughs> our, our good friend Brian Collins decided to shake things up a little bit and uh, format the trivia more in a Jeopardy style, which might or might not have been a mistake when you get about 20 minutes into it and, and uh, certain people are running full categories by themselves. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I will say this the episode has a lot of uh, twists and turns you don't expect. We uh, Scott and I are playing and we are joined by our good friend, Mr. Brian Duffield. And uh, it's... Director uh, of 
of spontaneous and no Never one will, last year's no one will save you. Uh, Someone probably will save you though. He was um he's not he's look uh, uh, we love Brian Duffield. Um <laughs> he t- he agreed to do this and told us up front like I'm not going to be good at Stephen King trivia and I said you know what neither are we baby mm-hmm. so it's it's all fine um how did that work out for brian duffield find out this friday on the patreon mm. again twists and turns you might not expect and also <laughs> maybe some twists and turns you do expect we, <laughs> yeah. we, shall, we shall see but it, it's a really fun uh bonus episode and if you want to listen to it head on over to patreon.com slash the king join our community over there all our episodes there are ad free they are they run the gamut from like commentaries to our our uh our recurring shelbyville rpg it's a an actual play rpg with mallory o'mara me mr wampler and our dm jacob hall and the special guest or two from time to time um and uh that's currently running through its second season and uh you get all sorts of fun stuff if you listen to the main feed exclusively you're only getting half the show so yes. throw us a sign up throw us a few bucks and you'll uh, more than get your money's worth yes absolutely I think that brings us to a close for this week. That is. All right. We'll see y'all next week to talk a little carry with Lily Sullivan. Adios, folks. Bye. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director. And editing is done by yours truly. Mm